the operative word today is fear. Wherever you look, talk to anybody, go most anywhere, and the conversation sooner or later will center around fear. Everything that most of us thought were nailed down in America seemed to be coming up. For some people, the change that is taking place is getting America right side up. A lot of us would say it's getting America upside down, but the operative word is fear. Between 1800 B.C. and 1600 B.C., Egypt was the strongest country in the world and the most affluent country. Other nations, other tribes were always invading Egypt, trying to conquer them or get something from them because they had great, great prosperity. Egypt threw them all out until finally they had no country, no people that were challenging their power or challenging their security. But the leaders in this particular period of time discovered something. They said, unless we keep the population in fear, we'll lose our power. And so they manufactured through innuendo, through rumor, that we're about to be attacked. Things are about to explode. We're about to lose our whole country. And with that kind of mentality, the people dare not change leadership. Fear, beginning way back in the B.C. era all the way till today, is a fine thing to keep on the dashboard and on the refrigerator and on all the news to keep a people under control by those who are then in power. Basic principle of history. And today we look at a myriad of things that are frightening most clear-thinking Americans. I'm going to show you a list. It's not exhaustive. I'll not exhaust every aspect of all of these items because we want to get a little nap before lunch. So let me just touch on some things briefly and succinctly. We're concerned about our economy. There's great fear. Why? We keep printing money, money we do not have, and it goes on and on, $1 trillion, $2 trillion, $6 trillion. Who buys up our debt, primarily China? And so we see the history of printing money leads any people ultimately to a country that is bankrupt. Bankrupt. And by the way, don't tell anybody. Keep this a big secret. I hope nobody tells Washington what comes after trillion. <laughs> Keep that down. Does anybody know? Lift your hand. 
What is it? Quadrillion. Quadrillion. You know what a quadrillion is? It's a thousand trillion. And we're running there as fast as we can get there, and that brings fear. And I ask the question, why would any government do this? Why? Economy. Education. The curriculum from kindergarten through high school, and certainly in all of our colleges and university, is radically changing. And that postmodernism philosophy that has been taught for a couple of decades in our college and university has made its way all the way down to the lowest level, and therefore we see a whole new method of, I think, basically rethinking and indoctrinating our sons and our daughters. And this causes great fear, anxiety. What is happening? What is taking place as far as education is concerned? And we ask the question, why? Why our economy is being mishandled? Why education is going through a whole new metamorphosis? Why? And what about our borders? We've addressed that many times. We're very aware of that because we live in Texas. Why would you open the borders, first a million and now two million, and it grows and grows every day with very little vetting? I've talked to many people who've been down there and what they basically do when they apprehend someone, they get their name, and who knows if that's accurate. And then primarily, they give them a bus ticket. And I've discovered only recently that all the children who were coming in, some young children, but the largest percentage of those who are called children, I have been told by those who've been there and have talked to border people, they're primarily 14 to 17 or maybe 18 or 21, who knows their age. And what's happening, all the Central and South American countries are emptying their jails and they're sending all of their gang members in and say, go, here's a ride. And the coyotes are being paid to bring them in. And they're bringing with them, read, keep up with the statistics of the drugs, the sex trafficking, and it goes on and on and on and on. And now we have no way, it seems, of stopping the millions and millions who are coming in. Why? Balance. Strategic. I am for every citizen of the United States of America to vote. I want them to vote. That is a part of our citizenship. I am for voting. But you get to vote only once. And you make sure that that person who has voted has authenticated by signature or by picture or by identification that I am the one who has voted. That is considered now to be racism. Concern about the ballots. We see an exploitation 
when people are depending on the government for funding for their existence and millions and millions more depend on the government for their funding, their existence. In fact, there are jobs available everywhere if you watched it. And people cannot find those who will fill those jobs because they're making more money not working with the trillions going into our economy. Do you see the problem? And now all these who come in illegally, being supported totally by the government, they have no credentials. And that leads us to the next problem that we have. It's the last one on the list, but I put it here with security, with the police. You ask why a desire to weaken the ballots? Why the desire to take people who are not citizens, put a ballot in their hand, and give them substance so they can live? And these people cannot live any way unless the police come in. And by the way, I stand here as a supporter of the people who wear the blue. I want you to know that. But now you have, I just have a peeper, somebody pull from the internet. I do not do internet. Uh, I had somebody pull all the statistics of crime in America for the past two years, and it will frighten you. Murder, rape, kidnapping, armed robbery, the list goes on and on. And I'm telling you, it is blowing away all records we've ever seen. I wonder why. All of a sudden, you have the police are diminished in number. All of a sudden, you have, guess what? In New York, in Colorado, and the issue before another state, now every policeman is personally liable for litigation as to how they carry out an arrest. Think about that. Therefore, in the past couple of months, over 9,500 policemen in New York City alone have resigned or left and saying, I can't take that personal risk. And for example, you're, you're a man in the blue or a woman in the blue and you arrest me and you don't put my handcuffs on properly. Look what it did to my hands. I'm going to sue you. And I can tell you, there are lines of lawyers ready to take that case. Lines of lawyers ready to take that case. So who would want to wear the blue? The academies have very few people training, and they're limited as to carrying out their job as they should carry out their job to protect we the people. Why defund? The minority communities need more police than any other area. Why defund and, and take the ability of these who protect us to protect us away from them? Why would any government do that? And then we look at the family. There is a very conscious movement to do away with the nuclear family, the nuclear family. A man and a woman married with children, a nuclear family. By the way, why do you think there's a movement to redefine the family, to eliminate the nuclear family? Maybe you haven't studied Marxism. Karl Marx says the best way to lead to people not owning any property is to destroy the nuclear family. And you can trace that down through Marxism. That's the first step. Why? Why would a company, a country, an education, economy, borders, 
ballots, family, police. Why? And church, church, the ultimate target, the evangelical church, most, quote, churches, churches will not get in the arena because of already sold out hook, line, and sinker to the culture. So there's not many standing. Let me tell you that. What's happening? I want to be very, very accurate here. In Canada, last week, the Senate, Canadian Senate, passed overwhelmingly a law, to paraphrase, that if any of the morality of the Bible is spoken out in any kind of public or private reference, you are breaking the law and you are under criminal indictment with a sentence up to two years. Did you get that? Any religious book, any morality they professed, it will be deemed hate speech. And I want to read you exactly an explanation of that. This is the Canadian Bill uh, 250, C-250, the interpretation. These rulings display the secularist ideology of government, government leaders who don't mind people, listen, they don't mind people who believe in religion as long as they don't act on it or teach it. I couldn't make that up. You can be as religious as you want to be, but don't teach it and don't live it out or you'll be indicted. This is where we are. And I ask why, and by the way, parenthetically, I hope I am wrong in this statement, but I think a bill much like that reworded in a certain way, would pass the House of Representatives in Washington as quick as zigzag lightning. Why? Why? I've grappled with that. I've asked a lot of people. All of this is a prescription by anybody's definition, progressive, liberal, anybody's definition who can think logically for a second leads to chaos. It leads to chaos. Inevitably. Why would leadership want to lead to chaos and then to let it be stated again the president's address on the state of the nation had 73% fewer people watching it than four years ago when the address was made. And in that address, he said a lot of things, but one thing just stood out for me. What was that? When he said the 27 amendments to the Constitution, none of them are absolute. Now, go back to fourth or fifth grade civics. Our Constitution has been totally 
totally misconstrued and so squirreled out in interpretation through postmodern thinking. It can mean almost anything. And now the bylaws and the amendments are totally up for grabs. And I said, well, how do you change one of them? I'd forgotten. You could do it by a procedure of states and conventions or two-thirds revolt of the House and the Senate, bang, you can change any and all of them. Therefore, we're seeing the preamble and the introduction of a desire to tear up all the basic documents upon which our nation stands. Fear. Powerful, powerful thing. Why? 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 One reason. Authority. One nation under God is being changed from one nation under the state. There's no other logical explanation. And you say, are we a nation under God? Yes, we are in the sense that these foundational documents were written by a couple of deists and primarily Bible-believing Christians, if you read your history. Not under God, under the state. In God we trust. Oh, no. In the state we trust. I don't see any other logical, rational explanation. If you have another one, tell me quickly because I've looked all over the place to find one. So what's the answer? What would God say to us, the church? The answer, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Corinth was in a situation much like ours. It was a situation that was totally dominated by Caesar and the Roman government. It was absolutely a situation in which you yielded, you bowed, you conformed to the constrictions of the government. And the result was almost many times anarchy. What is anarchy? It's the last verse in the book of Judges. It said there was no king in the land. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's anarchy. So you must have authority. But it's one thing to have authority. It's another thing for that authority to be authoritative. You know the difference. And so what is the answer we read in our Scripture? We're going to look at 14 through 21 of chapter number 4 of 1 Corinthians, and we begin by saying, what's the answer? Very simple. Very simple. Look at verse number 14. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you, speaking to the church, as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became 
your father because of the gospel, through the gospel. What's he saying? He's simply saying, look at it. Look at it. He's saying a very clear thing. He says, father knows best. He does. A father has authority, but a father is not to be authoritative. You have to have authority to have order, to have semblance of things. Some people just resist any kind of authority, but there must be some kind of authority. And here Paul is saying, I am the authority, and I've earned the right to be the authority because I am your father. I brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, and I founded that church. And I found it with the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel involves truth and grace. You got to have both. If you lose one, the gospel becomes invalid. Grace alone is license. Man, I can do anything, say anything, live any kind of life. I'm all under grace. God will forgive me. That won't work. That's not the gospel. Truth. Oh, truth is big. But truth is not the gospel alone because with only truth, you have legalism. Don't do this. Don't do that. Legalism. So the gospel has to have grace and truth. And Paul said, I came to you with grace and truth, and I am your father. Therefore, I have authority. And he didn't come with someone who was exercising authority in the sense it became authoritative. Explanation. Authority is someone who has a position and they're in charge, and they have a mutual goal with all of those who would follow them, and that authority person would come and try to get all the input that he can and all the giftedness that he can and all the ideas that he can and use all the creativity that was there, and the authority then would subjugate his authority and all of a sudden, it is a family with a structure of a father that would lead out together all the mentality, all the creativity, all the ability. And the father is a cheerleader, an encourager, and someone who tries to put the person in the right place at the right time. That's the right kind of authority. That's true leadership. But there's an authoritative thing here. Man, I'm in charge. You do this. You don't do that. You move over there. Hey, I'm speaking on behalf of God. Just saith the Lord. I, I'm an authority here, and I run the show. That's authoritative leadership. It's not true authority leadership. Paul says, Father knows best. I am coming to you in this position. I'm coming to you as an authority under God. He said, you may have a thousand people who will have input in your lives and tutors that will direct you. He said, you only have one dad. You only have one dad. I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more times. If you want to change America, you let the fathers in the home stand up and be a spiritual leader and a lover, and you'll change our land. How does this work? How, how does it operate? It's like the conductor of a symphony orchestra. 
Uh, you have a lot of gifted people in and of themselves in a, in a super major symphony. Every one of the instrumentalists, everyone who participated, they, they have a lot of ability. They are soloists. They have talent. They have creativity. They're learned. They may be degreed. But the conductor stands up and you're going to present uh, Beethoven's fifth or something then all the orchestra had to submit themselves to the score and to the music and let the conductor be the one who does how we interpret this particular piece of music. Or otherwise, you have the piccolo player going over here and the cymbal player going over here, but together under a conductor. My goodness, there is beautiful music because all the creativity and giftedness is bring, is bring out and it contributes to the whole. That is leadership. That is leadership. That is authority. Bam, and underneath that, there's not an authoritarianism. Very, very important. Paul says, I come to you as your father, and father knows best. And then the next thing he says, imitate me, imitate your father. My goodness, that's dangerous for most of us who are fathers. Verse 16, he says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. You know what we say? All right, kids, don't do as I do, as, as I used to do. I want you. No, no, no. You know what happens to us? With our children pretty much do what we have them to do until they get to be about 12 or 13. And tragically, mom and dad, they begin to live like we live. Oh, yeah. We, 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 we train and we guide. And there's a process in a family. It's like an illustration of, of, of a, a colt is born in a stall, and the colt stands up and stays in the stall until the colt can be in the barn. And then when the colt gets ready to the barn, the colt goes out in the corral. And finally, when the colt matures, you open the gates and the colts are in the field. And everywhere there are restraints there. But as we bring up our children, as we trust them and build the right stuff in them, they have more and more responsibility. Still, when they're in the wide field, there are fences out there. There may be physical fences, but primarily there are fences within when mom and dad has systematically built the right stuff of God in their lives. That's how we progress. That's how we grow. And Paul stands up. This father stands up. He said, I want you to imitate me. They imitate us whether we like it or not, folks. That's how it happens. Be an imitator of me, a father. George Washington was called what? The father of our country. Why? Well, he was general of the army in the revolution. Yeah. And he, he presided over the Continental Congress. All these documents came to be, yeah. He's our first president. Man, and anybody who studied history seriously know that they would have made him king. And Washington was inferior. History will show this. I've read a, a biography of two of every one of them through the years. Washington was grossly inferior to all of his contemporaries. Any way you measure it. Franklin, Madison, Hamilton. Man, all of the, basically inferior. Anybody knows that. 
inferior knowledge and research and foreign affairs and economics. Washington wasn't the most brilliant person who's ever walked around by a long stretch. Read a biography of him by an honest broker. But I'm telling you, all those people around him, Franklin, Hamilton, oh my goodness, Madison, Jefferson, Franklin, Benjamin, I mean, Washington was way down in a building. What did he have? George III of England, his leading antagonist, said this about Washington. He's never seen someone in leadership like him, King of England. He said Washington had the ability, when he could have taken more power, he gave power away. When power would come to him, he would give it away and refuse to assume it. He said he had four times to assume more power, and he did the very opposite. He moved away from assuming more power. And George III said, that's unprecedented leadership. That's why these brilliant, gifted founders of our land looked to Washington because they knew he could handle power. You see what we're saying? Father, father of our country, father of a family, father at this moment of history. What is the answer? And then Paul goes on to address the situation in Corinth. And do you realize the bedlam in Corinth? I've gone over this. Man, anywhere you look, Corinth is in trouble. <laughs> Immorality, <laughs> name it, we're going to get to it. Hang in there. How about the court system in Corinth? Did you know in Corinth, in the court system, many times they had a thousand jurors, a thousand in the jury? Sometimes they had over 6,000 who were in the jury taking a case. And all those in the jury, guess what? They were paid by the state. Every one of them. If you need any money, I'm going to join the jury pool today. I'm one of four or 5,000 on this case. You see how it works. Everything of the state, by the state, from the state, no opposition to the state. Mussolini defined it. I've been over it. Authoritarianism leads to totalitarianism and leads to socialism, and socialism always, without exception, leads to some form of dictatorship. Read your history. And this is where we are. What is the answer? Father knows best. What is the answer? Imitate the Father, the Father God. And then Paul says, about you in the church at Corinth, what happened in Corinth? Say it one more time. The non-Christians in Corinth could not be distinguished from the Christians in Corinth. That sound familiar? A non-Christian, no different than a Christian, and the culture had swallowed the church Paul is trying to address that to show them that God's principles are not arbitrary. They're not mean. They're just simply to say, well, what is a book? What is a Bible? Some would say the book, the Bible is an authoritative book. Don't do this. Do this. Conform that. Get under the Bible. It is authoritative. It is not. It is a book of authority. And when God is there over us and our relationship to Jesus Christ. You know what you find? Freedom. 
Living God's way in Christ is total, complete, celebratory freedom. That is the authority. And Paul says to the Corinthians, he said, I'm sending you help. Father knows best. Imitate me as your spiritual father. And then he says, I'm sending you help. He said, I'm sending Timothy to you. Look at it. It's it's an interesting thing. He said, verse 17, for this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, said Paul, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He's saying he's going to remind you of the ABCs and the XYZs so that you as Christians may grow up and be adequate and be my representative in a culture that has overwhelmed you. I'm sending help. And then Paul says, oh, hold on. He said, I'm also coming. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Oh, there's a big word. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Oh, what do we do? What's our answer to all this fear that we have? Maybe pretended fear, maybe genuine fear. What is the answer? Father knows best under the authority of God in Christ. The imitation of those, the Father there, he said, would be God in Jesus Christ as a man in Christ was Paul. And then he said, Timothy is going to come to you and remind you of the ABCs. And hopefully, he says, you'll grow up and get to the XYZs of your faith in maturity. He says, but I'm going to come. And I'm going to come and see if all of those in the culture and even in the church who become arrogant with words, with words, they've redefined words. Have you noticed? They've redefined titles, have you noticed? They've redefined everything. They have been a modification of history. He says, I'm going to come and see if all of these who have all of these words are of the kingdom of God. Is it just words? If it's of the kingdom, words with them have power. You get it? Remember the kingdom of God, basic principle. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the Bible are interchangeable. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of God? It is already. Remember? The kingdom of God comes, you draw a circle, get in the middle of that circle. If the Lord Jesus Christ runs your life and he is in your life and you're in Christ, a man or a woman in Christ, in the middle of that circle is the kingdom of God. Jesus came. He says, I have brought to you the kingdom the kingdom. It is already, but also it's not yet. Remember? In other words, thy kingdom come in the Lord's prayer. We're praying for the second coming of Jesus Christ, but also thy will be done on earth as is in heaven, not only in heaven, but right now as we are kingdom citizens, not just in words, but in lifestyle, in commitment, in lordship. And therefore, the kingdom is here now in Christ, 
in those who are in Christ and in his body, the church, and the kingdom will come. It's already, but it's not yet. And therefore, Paul is saying, I am coming to see if those who are talking so much, bragging so much, instructing so much, contrary to basic ABCs, XYZs of Christianity with law and with grace, truth and with reconciliation. He said, I'm going to see if they've got any power. Let's have a power contest. In light of all the fear that we documented, and there's a whole lot more, how do we, how does the church at Corinth, how do we then live and then respond? We need power, right? Power. Power in the face of fear. Whoa. Where do we get power? Flip to your left. To John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father hmm, had given all things unto his hands, and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. Now listen, it's always a mystery that Jesus was totally man and totally God. There are reams of theological debate. When did he know he was totally God? When did he have a life that was totally human? Human, divine, divine, human. How does that play out? If he were always human, his, his, his always divine, his human life would have been a charade, wouldn't it? But by the same token, if he's... So there's always a mystery. But here we see, and I believe it played back and forth. That's in the hands of the Almighty, the Father. Man, God, God, man, but here at this moment, did you hear the verses? It says, Jesus now, we know at this moment at least, he knew that all power was in his hands. Whatever he'd known or not known before as God-man, at this moment, he said, all power is in his hands. What is he going to do with that power, folks? What's he going to do with it? Man, maybe he'll... Call down lightning, zip, and destroy the Roman Empire. Bang, he could do that. He could do that. 10,000 angels, bang, he could do that. Man, he could part the Red Sea or the Atlantic Ocean. He could do that. He could take Mount Sinai and move it to California. He could do that. All power was in his hands. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here in an oppressed moment of great fear. And my goodness, if all power, you know, what did Jesus do with all that power? Read the next verses. He went around to his apostles. He took off their sandals and washed their feet. Strange use of power. And then in just a few hours, a day or so, he who had all the power, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, all the power of the almighty God, 
was nailed to a cross and a cosmic event took place as all the power of God invested in him, Jesus of Nazareth died for straggly human beings like you and like me. What's, what's the most powerful thing in this world? First John tells us, <laughs> it's very clear. First John chapter 18, it says, by his love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because he, Jesus, is so also are we in the world. Listen, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, that's Christ, cast out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. The most powerful thing in the world at our disposal as Christians and as a church is love. And love is not just mush and emotion and feeling. Love is something you do. And love also implies discipline. Father, imitate me. Timothy is going to come and teach you the ABCs of churchanity and Christianity. And I am going to come and establish the kingdom of God among you. And it's based on the power of love which casts out all fear. Now, let's get very simple and very practical. If all of these things that are happening to us is to cause chaos, we as Christians in the church, what are the first couple steps? Okay, it's very practical. Number one, each and every one of us sells out to Jesus Christ and lives a life empowered by his spirit with humility and grace. Every one of us begins to do what I say over and over again, to have narrow worship every day. I, thou, myself and God, you and God with scripture and prayer, narrow worship every day. And then we have wide worship when we come together as a family of God. That's power. And we begin to be lovers. 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 When individuals live like that under Christ and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his book, I say this theologically, not as a profane thing. When you and I begin to live like that, it scares the hell out of those who are secular. The second step is the family. 
Father knows best. Father says, imitate me. He says, here's the kingdom. Here's how it operates. And you're in the kingdom. And therefore, when in our families, family of one, a family of 21, we begin regularly, daily, systematically to worship as a family. Families kneeling before God every day, going to God every day, and worshiping on the weekend every day in our secular community, in our culture that is overwhelming us. Families like that, I say it theologically, scares the hell out of the godless. I'm going to give you an antique illustration of that. Very basic. 1954. So, well, that's a long time ago. And I hear, you can't turn back the clock. We turn back the clock all the time when he's keeping the wrong time, don't we, ladies and gentlemen? So we're going to turn back the clock and give a very simple illustration as to what happens when an individual and a family seeks to God to worship him and to follow him as lovers. As lovers. We're going to turn back the clock. Billy Graham was in London with the crusade. Thousands of people came to Christ. The London Times, trying to counteract his revival, his renewal in the hearts and lives of people, published these words. Graham has set England back to the 1800s. They asked Billy Frank about that. He said, boy, I've been a failure. I wanted to set England back to the first century. <laughs> the power of love expressed in your life and my life, expressed in our family. Man, it just frightens the demons of hell and those who would take America and move it from a nation under God to a nation solely under a godless state, this frightens them more than anything else. A secular TV program, 1954, Listen. Ready, get some plates. Kathy, you sit there. Bud, pull up a chair. Now, get this one for Mommy. There's nothing like hamburgers for Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, I'm starving. So am I. You know something? This is the happiest, unhappy Thanksgiving I've ever spent. <laughs> and I feel I'd like to say thanks in a rather special way. Oh, Lord. We give thee thanks from the depths of our humble hearts for all the blessings thou hast seen fit to bestow upon us. We thank thee for the food which graces our table, the roof which covers our head. We thank thee for the privilege of living as free men in a country which respects our freedom 
and our personal rights to worship and think and speak as we choose. We thank thee for making us a family, for giving us sincerity and understanding. But most of all, dear Lord, we thank thee for giving us the greatest gift a family may know, the gift of love.